Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the political party at the start of what I hope is a very happy weekend for you. Today's guest is Ian Dale and I've been meaning to get Ian on for ages and literally the moment we started talking I just thought why? Why is it taking me so long? I kind of internally was kicking myself because this is such a wonderful conversation. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Ian Dale and his work, LBC presenter, former Conservative parliamentary candidate, publisher, author, he does it all. And I think he shares a similar perspective on the world to me, although our politics are slightly different. Um, although in the grand scheme of things, probably not that different. Um, but it's someone who talks a lot about and thinks a lot about um, the nature of our discourse and the tone of it and why it can't be improved. In fact, he's got a book out at the moment called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? I've put a link to that book in the blurb so that you can buy it. Um, I'm reading it at the moment. It's absolutely brilliant. As you will gather from this conversation, he's just such an easy person to talk to. And um, a very thoughtful, really funny, just brilliant. So this goes a little bit longer than the average episode, just because I was completely engrossed in the conversation, and because he says such great things, I just wanted to keep talking to him selfishly. Um, so on the matter of books, although this this episode obviously is, is dedicated to Ian and his book, you may have gathered from previous episodes. I have a book out called Politically Homeless, and one of the downsides of COVID, of course, is that I can't have a book launch, which is you know I've never written a book before, so um, it's a bit of a shame I won't be able to have a sort of cocktail event or whatever I'd imagined in my head a poorly attended uh, book launch. Um, but I'm doing a virtual book launch on the 13th of October. Uh, you can buy tickets for it if you've already bought the book. So there's two types of tickets you can buy. You can one where you get a signed copy of the book 
and a ticket to this uh, online event. Uh, or if you've already bought the book, in which case, thank you very much. Um, and there's another link where you can just pay to, to, to come to the event. And the event uh, is me talking about the book. And I am being interviewed this time. Uh, and this time I'm being interviewed by Alistair Campbell. So I'm sure it would be great fun. I imagine it's just going to be him... Um, taking the piss for about an hour and me taking the piss back. But uh, we shall try and talk about the book. I'll obviously try and promote it as best I can. Um, Ian's book, though. And I've, the links to those are in the blurb as well. So th there's a lot of links for you to click on today. Um, the link to buy Ian's book, the link to my um, book launch, which you're all invited to, uh, and the link to my book as well. So there we go. It's a very book-heavy chat at the start of the show. Um, so... Um, Let's let's crack on with Ian. Um, his book is called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? And that's how I open the interview, by asking him what he thinks the answer is to the question, why can't we all just get along? Because you're a twat. <laughs> that's me, but what about everyone else? Well, I think that, that it is our use of language, which I think has become so coarsened over recent years. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon in many ways, because if you think back to the uh, 18th, 19th century, you look at the political cartoons of those eras, and they are far more vicious than anything we have today. And the House of Commons was far more vicious. So um, we've always been a fairly rumbustious people in this country. Um, and, and that's, I guess, human nature as well, because... If somebody calls you a twat on Twitter <laughs> or on your podcast or on your podcast, your instant reaction is to respond instantaneously and you call them. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Of course, now? yes. As liberally you, as you like. You call them a fucking twat. <laughs> and then it escalates from there. Uh, and, by, and you've just made a new enemy. Yeah. Uh, completely unintentionally in many ways, but it's down to human nature. We respond in a human way. Um, and we've lost the art of taking time to think about what we're going to say. We don't deliberate enough anymore. We just instantly hit that keyboard. And um, someone, I say in the book, somebody once said on Twitter, on the radio, Ian Dell's nice, 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 but on Twitter, he's an absolute beast. <laughs> And I, that did really sort of make me think. And I thought, you know what, they're right. And I do mm. need to moderate myself on Twitter a bit. But it, everything's tribal, isn't it, Matt? You, I mean, politics is tribal. Football's tribal. We all belong to different tribes. And if our tribe is under attack, uh, we hit back. Uh, and that is so easy to do on social media in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago, was it? That's so true, actually. I hadn't thought of this, but it reminds me of... Uh, I had Matt Zarb Cousin on the show a while ago now. And, you know, he's robust on social media, to put it politely. And I think so much of it actually is... Now, I would look at his Twitter account and think, well, you're just sort of abusing people, where he saw he was coming from a defence position. And I think yeah. if you perceive that someone has struck first then you can basically justify any reply. So actually, yeah. everyone is just in a loop of responding without realising that they are sort of actively creating a culture. Yeah, and it actually, I mean, getting serious for a minute, it, it does play on a lot of people's mental health. And I, I've never suffered from depression. But even I, at one point, not that long ago, actually, I remember it was about half past midnight, I was in bed, laptop on my pillow, sad, uh, isn't it what were you watching <laughs> <laughs> no i won't go there um no, 
<laughs> we can't get wanking jokes in so early, Matt. This, oh, this, can't we? To, we've got to lead up to that. <laughs> uh, um, and I was involved. I was in, involved in some sort of ridiculous Twitter argument with an egg with six followers. And I just thought to myself, what are you doing? And I, I remember having a really sleepless night thinking about this. I kept waking up and thinking, this is not healthy. And although I, I don't get depressed by these things, I, I'm a human being just like anybody else. Politicians are human beings just like anybody else. Everybody has feelings. And sometimes when you sometimes through no fault of your own you are the subject of twitter comment and you think well this who are they talking about this is not me i've i've got to correct the record yes and i mean there are times when if i hit the headlines for what, whether it's a good reason or a bad reason sometimes i cannot look at my twitter feed for 24 48 hours particularly and this will probably provoke them again particularly if i say anything negative about nicola sturgeon that is it i am the subject of and i'm actually quite sympathetic to scottish independence but nobody ever remembers when i say things like that it's if i question her record on coronavirus or whatever um i'm a well whatever english insert swear word <laughs> and look, i can take it but you shouldn't have to then have to avoid twitter for 24 hours and i've got to points where i think i'm thinking do i really want to be on twitter anymore and i don't I, I genuinely think if i didn't do the the kind of work that i do if i wasn't involved in politics and the media i don't think i would be on twitter i might look mm. at it but i don't think i would bother contributing anymore because it's just become a sewer it's interesting the thing about independence i think every movement kind of has that online army and it, you sort of dip your toe and then you realize oh my god you know if mm. it was corbyn or brexit and then it just opens up a whole new room of twitter full of really angry people you think i'd forgotten about the brexiteers or the corbynistas or, or the nats you know and i think what's been really interesting for me over the last few years is actually it's very easy for people like me to be sort of around the center and go well actually we don't behave like this you know it's all these extremists that behave like this and then mm. post brexit a lot of the people that I follow, sort of pro-Remain, started behaving in a way that I just thought was completely unfair. Saying really nasty things about older people and, yeah. you know, people that they perceive to be thick. And it was just like, you, then you realise, actually, no, every side has a certain amount of highly motivated, quite nasty individuals. And it's well, not that, unique to one point on the compass. That, that is absolutely right. And um, Sometimes people say to me, well, how can you be on the same side as these horrible people who insult Remainers? And I'm thinking, well, how can you be on the same side as these hashtag FBPE people who are members of a cult? Or they, they appear to be. And that's, in a sense, the essence of what I write about. Because if you don't actually understand that there is an alternative point of view, a legitimate alternative point of view, you may not agree with it, but you need to understand it because how on earth can you argue against your opponents or people that you disagree with if you don't even make an attempt to understand where they're coming from? And sometimes, you know what, sometimes they might say something that you think, oh, now they've got a point there. But if you, if you just have these blinkers on and you have your ears shut and you just don't want to hear anything and all you're after is self-validation, it's like these people who's, who uh, may be of my political persuasion who say, well, I'm not going to listen to James O'Brien. You think, well, you're the very sort of person who ought to, yeah. because how can, how can you counter his sometimes um, interesting arguments um, if you don't actually even try to understand where he's coming from on them? And 
all arguments ought to have some degree of nuance on them. Very few things are black and white. Yeah. It wasn't, the referendum campaign was not black and white. Um, I, everyone thinks I was one of the big cheerleaders for Brexit. I absolutely wasn't. I, I didn't decide to vote to leave until Cameron's deal or lack of a deal in February 2016. And I, I didn't even say how I'd voted until after it had all finished. But because I've been a bit of a cheerleader from it since, people imagine that I'm a lifelong outer. Absolutely not. I used to do speeches for the European movement in the 1980s. I mean, how, how things have changed there. In the 1980s, Labour was campaigning to get out of the EEC as it was then. And I was making speeches all in favour of more European integration. <laughs> I mean, it's, politics is wonderful, isn't it? It is. And you, your life is fascinating. You've done so many different things um, prior to broadcasting and to politics. With Politico's um, bookshop, um, I mean, how do you... It's one of those things you think, I don't know how people actually get into publishing. Like, what's the route in? <laughs> Well, it was completely fortuitous or, or the opposite in, in some ways. Um, I mean, I've gone through my entire working life at times having to reinvent myself and do different things. And they've all been in the political media world, but um, we all have successes. We all have failures in our lives. And I, I've had both. Um, I, I, the only reason I opened Politico's was because I'd been uh, my first job well, I started working after university. I did two years in the House of Commons in the mid-1980s. A really exciting time to be in there, actually. Yeah. Um, but I had to get a proper job. I, I could have been one of these people that just stayed in the House of Commons for all my life because I was effectively a glorified secretary. I, I was answering all the correspondence because at that point, MPs really had one or two members of staff at the most. I was paid £6,000 a year. And I was working all the hours that there were. But I loved every minute of it. I remember on my first day... I was walking into Central Lobby and I saw Jim Callaghan and President wow. Ford coming the other way. Oh my and God. I, and I think you, you're exactly like me in this. I just thought to myself, what's a boy from Essex doing in a place like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there's, and even now when I go in there, there's still this sort of sense of wonderment. So I did that for two years and then I got a job as a lobbyist for the um, British Ports Federation. And my job was to persuade the Thatcher government to get rid of the dock labour scheme, which gave dockers enhanced employment rights. Um, so we, we did that. Um, I was sort of the media spokesman for the employers during a national dock strike. And that was sort of my first brush with the, the national media. I suppose That was when Kevin Maguire, age 27, was industrial correspondent for The Telegraph. Wow. I thought he was a Tory. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Wow. Um, so the, the MP you worked for was Patrick Thompson. Patrick Thompson and Robert Key. Um, and what were they like as employers well, back then? Well, I'd met, I'd met Patrick um, when I was at university in Norwich, at the University of Easy Access, as it was known in those days. Not now. Both <laughs> <laughs> best university in the country. And um, that's when I really became politically active. I was studying German. I intended to be a German teacher. Um, but I then caught the political virus, and you can never get rid of it, as you well know. Yeah. And um, so I, I ended up running part of the campaign in Norwich North against David Ennals in the 1983 election, and we ran the campaign on the campus. And it was a very left-wing university. When I, when I first went there, there was no conservative organisation at all. So I started one in my second year at the Freshers' Fair. We got more members of the Labour Party. They were delighted because they then had a real enemy to fight rather than just the extreme left. <laughs> So, um, and we had some fantastic sort of debates and speaker meetings. Caroline Flint was there at the same time. Wow. I remember doing a debate with her in the student union on whether VAT should be taken off women's sanitary products. 
And I think I shocked her when I got up and said, yeah, absolutely, you're right. <laughs> and um, Mark Seddon was there. Um, oh, Ian man. He used to work for Ann Taylor. Um, lots of Vicky Phillips, um, Karen Smith, the Bristol MP, she was there. So it was a, re- it was a really political place. And um, so... I, so I then said to Patrick, look, I'd really like to work in the House of Commons. Um, he won the seat. So I, I, I was the first, I think, in my uh, group to actually get a job then because it wasn't graduate employment in the mid-1980s was not easy. So, yeah, so I went and spent a couple... I spent the first year working in the Palace of Westminster and then because it was a marginal seat, um, I spent some time on that and then I got paid by the only time I've ever been paid by Conservative Central Office. Um, I then effectively in the run up to the 87 election uh, built up the campaign in Norwich against um, who was the candidate then? Mary um, Honeyball was the candidate then. And then in 1992, I went back uh, when uh, he was fighting Ian Gibson, who of course won the seat then in 97. Uh, It's an interesting place, Norwich. Even now it really is. so that was that. And then I did the Port Employers. And then in 1990, I started a lobbying company with my former boss at the Port Employers. And we concentrated on transport things. And that went really well. I started a conference organizing company that did well. And then in 1996, um, we fell out in a spectacular way, which led to me leaving. Um, I was sort of half sacked, half resigned. <laughs> and I was, you I can't was fire me, I quit. Exactly. Um, I, I was unemployed. And I wasn't sure what to do. Um, I mean, it got to the point where I nearly took a job in Tesco's in Canary Wharf on the tills. Um, But I decided that I'd been to Washington a few times and they had this shop called Political Americana. It wasn't a bookshop as such. It it sold mainly sort of American campaign paraphernalia. I thought, well, why isn't there one in London? Or why isn't there one in Westminster? So I developed a little business plan I didn't have really any money. I think I had about, I, I did get a payoff from that job. Um, and I, I think I had about, uh, and I sold my car, a Princess Diana's Audi Cabriolet. So I sold that. <laughs> um, and I had about 20,000 to put into it. And looking back, knowing, knowing what I know now about business and cash flow, I was mad. <laughs> I raised, I think, 40,000 pounds from friends and family. So I started the whole thing with 60,000 pounds. Um, which was mental because people don't, if you've never run a business, whether it's small or large, you don't understand that it's not profit that matters, it's cash flow. And if you can't pay the bills, that's it. Yeah. And books and publishing is always a precarious business. Um, and it was fantastic when we opened the shop, I think about six weeks before the uh, 2000, no, 1997 election campaign started. So it's great timing. Wow. That's the media coverage. And we did lots of events in the shop, book launches, political meetings. I remember Claire Fox used to run her living Marxism stuff. which would come in on Tuesday evenings with these weird Serbo-Croats um, in tow. Um, and it became a, a Westminster Village venue. Yeah. Um, and it was great fun to do. And so I started then doing a bit of media stuff. You'd get um, uh, Five Live coming in, recording stuff. You'd get Sky News coming in, doing interviews in there. Um, and we really were part of the scene. And I remember one day, 
um, Joe Phillips, who was um, the producer of Five Live Sunday Service Programme, came in and said, well, Andrew Pierce is off because Feed Lover and Charlie Whelan used to do the Sunday morning show with, um, with Andrew Pierce. And she said, would you like to co-present Sunday Service? And I thought all my Christmases had come at once because it was my favourite radio show. Feed Lover was and still is, I think, the best broadcaster on British radio. Um, oh, I'm going to upset a lot of people saying that. <laughs> but I, in fact, I said that um, in the book, I think, and Jane Garvey didn't, didn't like it. Well, I mean, if you're only picking one, it's fine, isn't it? I know, then, I know. Um, and you are a broadcaster yourself, so you're, yeah. you're kind of... Well, I do sort of, I mean, I... You're being modest about yourself in recommending um, someone else. I then, so I went and did about 20 of these shows with Charlie Whedon and Fee. Um, there was a mixed cast of characters over the, over the months. My finest moment, though, on that was with Richard Cabourne had just been appointed sports minister. And I said, I said to them, why don't we do a little quiz with him and see how good he is oh, on sport? Oh, and of man. course, he literally got virtually every question wrong. And it was his first week in the job. Oh, gutted. And unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't take, it, it was my idea, but I didn't take any credit for it at all. And because it was obviously, actually, I'm not sure it was Fee asking the questions, and I think she may have been off, but whoever it was asking the questions, they got blanket coverage in the press because it was one of those moments. Yeah. And I thought, I just thought, well, I think I'm doing this quite well. Is somebody not going to come and offer me a radio show? But they, they never did. There's one day when Juliet Morris, who was presenting it, she didn't turn up. And I said to Joe Phillips, the producer, I said, well, go on, let, let me be the main presenter. But Five Live wouldn't. They didn't say, well, not, not enough experience. And I know I could have done it. And so I didn't, I, I kind of put the radio thing behind me because I thought, well, it's not going to happen. And then in 2009, Yasmin Alibi-Brown rang me up and she said, oh, I've got an audition at LBC. And I said, well, how'd you get that? So she gave me the name of the guy, Jonathan Richards, who ran it. So I emailed him. He knew of me through my political blog. And so we did a joint audition, um, a sort of 20-minute fake phone-in programme where we yeah. had the producers pretended to be callers and we had to be the presenters. And Yasmin is fantastic as a pundit and a commentator, whether you agree with her or not. And she's a great friend of mine. We disagree on everything. Where I'm <laughs> right-wing, she's left-wing, and the opposite way around. Um, so we did this programme and it was awful. And I just thought, because you have to be able to introduce the news tease ahead to the next hour introduce the travel and do all of that stuff as well as giving your views um so i thought i'd never hear from them again then three weeks later they ring me up and say well, can you do the evening show today because our presenters off the old petri hoskin um so i said yeah absolutely with yasmin no just with you oh awkward <laughs> <laughs> and you're still friends we are still friends and she comes on the show in fact i've just done a podcast with her about her new book um ladies who punch um so we are very good friends and she's never held it against me and that is that is a mark of the woman i think um and 11 years on i'm still there well that's brilliant um I, I just just in terms of what you were like at university were you a, were you a radical tory were you like john burko where you're in the monday <laughs> club and with all no. the nelson mandela and stuff like that no um i i mean, unlike most of the those who were in these libertarian factions um and there were a lot there were a lot of them I mean, dougie smith who now works in number 10 is manira Mirza's husband he was part of all of this um he was from st andrews university which was the hotbed of the sort of libertarian faction of the federation of conservative students and i can remember going to a conference in durham it must have been 
March or April 83. That was the first time I'd ever been to anything like this. And I could not believe what I was seeing. Yeah. These Paul Goodman was the sort of quasi leader of the wet faction, um, which is ironic considering now that he's seen as being very much on the right. Um, I'm trying to think who else was uh, there at that. Anyway, um, and I stood to be on the FCS executive as a non-faction candidate. Big mistake. I mean, I actually nearly did get on, but it, I was only a couple of votes off. But Mark McGregor um, said to me, why on earth didn't you sort of stand for our faction? And he said, you're a Thatcherite. Um, and I said, well, I don't really like all this faction stuff. I said, surely we're all conservatives, aren't we? Surely it shouldn't be like this. I was very naive, I think, at the time. And, and I, th I suppose... I I was always to the left of a lot of these people. I wasn't sort of on the Heathite left because at that point it was Thatcherites and Heathites. Um, but I was never very comfortable with some of their, should we say, more interesting, in inverted commas, views. And it, it, there was also this battle between the libertarians and the authoritarians. Burko was very much on the authoritarian side. He was, I think he was secretary of the Monday Club Youth Wing, wasn't he? Or sort of their immigration committee. Like yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how, how, what a journey he's been on. <laughs> so, do you do you feel like you do you feel like you missed out on a radical phase then that you never you were never a zealot? I think some people still think do think I am a zealot. <laughs> I've never, never quite understood this because I'm not ideological. I, I do have firm opinions um, and, and beliefs, which I suppose ground my politics. But we, we live in 2020 now. We don't live in 1983. Um, I would still describe myself as a Thatcherite in economic terms, but I fully accept that with the, the situation now that we're in, we have to follow an Ed Ball's economic policy, something I never thought I would hear myself say. Um, but if, if we're going to get the country back on its feet, the government has got to play a big role in this. I believe in a small state. I believe in balancing the books. But at, at the moment, we, it is effectively the equivalent to a sort of wartime siege economy and the government has to have a role in that um so that there's a, there are lots of people who think i've become very sort of lefty and woke over the years i've always been a social liberal i'm not a social conservative i i i, I have traveled a little bit of a journey on some of these issues on abortion for example if we'd had this conversation 25 years ago i would have been pretty much pro-life um but I don't take that view now because I think it's the sort of thing where you have to be pragmatic. You have to accept it's a bit like prostitution. You have to accept that abortion has always existed. It always will. So therefore you need to regulate it on prostitution. I would happily legalize it. I think it's a disgrace. Our prostitution laws are a disgrace. And I think it's quite, you can still be a conservative and argue for that sort of thing to happen. Um, I'm not a conservative party member. I haven't been for 10 years. Uh, I would still, if you, if you said, what do you self-identify as? I would still say as a conservative, but I've voted for four different parties in the last 10 years. In a general election, I would normally vote conservative, freely admit that. Um, but I'm not active any longer. Uh, I feel it's quite liberating in a way, particularly, and, I, and I, I didn't renew my membership because of LBC. I, I wasn't asked not to. I just thought it's not really appropriate. And I, But it's really interesting particularly on social media where nobody ever remembers all the times that i critique the government or slag off boris johnson they remember all the times when i say oh he did that well or this policy is right 
Um, again, no nuance at all. I, I'm, I had an exchange recently with a guy, um, Richard, on Twitter, who called me a Tory stooge and so far up Boris Johnson's arse, you couldn't see my legs. Um, and I thought, well, how do you come to that conclusion? And so I tweeted him back and I said, well, here, here are nine occasions in the last three months when I've crit criticised the government. Yeah. I mean, is, that, is that what a Tory stooge would do? And we've now developed this bizarre friendship on, on Twitter <laughs> and sort of WhatsApp now where um, it's actually, I mean, we've never met, we've never spoken, but bizarrely have become really good friends. And he sort of told me all sorts of things about his life. And it's just weird how these things happen. So that's where social media, if you handle it right, can bring you together. But if I had done what I would normally, my inst instinct would have been to say, well, probably to swear, um, um, that, that would clearly would not have happened. I mean, that is one of the great things about Twitter is, and with social media in general, is that not only does it help you find like-minded people, but even in the kind of heat of battle, there's, there's often an avenue out, you know, not necessarily yeah. that is a kind of lesson for the Middle East or anything grand like that, <laughs> but, but certainly just human beings interacting with each other. You can often prick the tension with a joke or something like that, but... I, I, I was just going to ask, dwell too much um, on youth, but what made you a Tory then? Was that, was, did you come from a conservative household? Was it Mrs. T? It, it was actually, uh, in all joking aside. <laughs> um, my, I came from a farming background. All my wider family were farmers. All my cousins now are in farming. And to quote Neil Kinnock, I'm the first Dale in a thousand generations not to be a farmer. I knew from the age of five I didn't want to be a farmer. Um, I, I really had a fantastic childhood. I think I had an idyllic, perfect childhood. But there was, I just knew I wanted to do something else. Um, and my parents were not political. My mother came from a liberal family. Um, my father, I think, generally voted Conservative, but in 1974, which was the first election I can remember, uh, he voted Liberal because Ted Heath had taken us into the EEC, which meant that he had to sell all of, all of his cattle. And that, that, was, yeah. I mean, that was it, basically. Um, my grandmother, however, who was known as the Duchess because she had certain regal heirs, she lived with us throughout my childhood, died when I was 17, um, and we had a very tempestuous relationship. We'd have terrible arguments. And I would then invariably slip a note of apology under her door, under her bedroom Aww. door each night, because I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> uh, and, um, but she was quite political and she was always up with, I mean, even though she was very regal, she was one of these old ladies who loved watching World of Sport with Dickie Davis on a Saturday afternoon. I would literally sit by the television, about a foot away from it, urging on Kendo Nagasaki and giant haystacks in the wrestling, which <laughs> I never quite got that, but anyway. Um, but she, she was quite political. Uh, and one of my earliest political memories is of the day that Margaret Thatcher became leader of the Conservative Party, and she was ill in bed. And I ran up the stairs to tell her this, and she burst into tears. I thought, that's a bit strange. And it was because she never thought she'd live to see the day a woman would lead a political party. Oh, man. And it really meant something to her. And I think she, I do remember her saying to me, never trust Labour because they always spend more than they can afford. And Michael Foote's a communist. <laughs> <laughs> the first was certainly true. The latter we could debate. Um, uh, and then in 1978, after my O-levels, 
we, all, we had to do a project to fill up the term. So we did one on local politics and, and I interviewed the Liberal Mayor of Saffron Walden, which is where I grew up in Essex. And I was quite impressed by her. And then two days later, this car came up our drive and um, it's from the Liberal Party, uh, signed me up as a, as a member at the age of 16. And my mother, even though she had been a Liberal, but um, the sort of Jeremy Thorpe affair rather put her off the Liberals. <laughs> she used to, it's poor Jeremy, she would say. Because um, he, he had a certain attraction to women, Jeremy Thorpe. It's difficult to imagine now, but he really did. And so I signed up as a Liberal Party member. And then about a few months after that, I, it must have been Margaret Thatcher's speech at the 1978 Tory party conference. Uh, and I listened, I watched it and I remember thinking, well, I agree with all of that. And you have to put it in the context of the times because Britain really was the sick man of Europe at the time. The, the strikes were unbelievable. I remember going on a German exchange and the Germans would laugh at us because of our strike record. And um, we had red Robbo. Um, then came the winter of discontent and what she was her diagnosis of all of this really struck home with me and i became quite political in the sixth form and in the 1979 general election we did a mock election and i was the conservative candidate which let's face it in saffron warden was not the most challenging role in fact it's the only election i've ever won in my life <laughs> um and i beat the national front into second place <laughs> Hang on, there was the national front stood in a school election yeah can you imagine what? that happening now yeah Oh my, and like how, how distant a second did they finish? Um, I, I, my memory is that I had a 27% majority, but that must have meant that they, they scored quite highly. Yeah. I mean, and what was their candidate like? Was he just openly I racist? Even, I can't remember anything about it apart from the result. And I don't think that my memory is playing tricks with me on that. But it was a very different age. I remember going to a sixth form disco dressed as a gamekeeper okay. with my dad's 12 bore shotgun with a cartridge belt of live cartridges oh my god <laughs> this is like <laughs> i mean the, you could also, have been oh so i was driving a combine harvester unsupervised at the age of eight this is like a sort of nicholas Soames. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, taking live rounds into school and the teachers didn't say no Ian Dale, nothing, nothing what are you doing bringing live rounds to the school disco? at all. Different times. But you could have... Were you not tempted to just sort of fire one off? No, because I'm a responsible person. Responsible person who takes live ammunition <laughs> onto the school site. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the sort of gamekeeper thing, fine. And like, I, I get, you know, an empty thing gun, is, you could see... People, but... people cannot relate to this, but I'll tell you what... Um, in my village, there was, uh, I went to the local primary school, about 100 kids there, and then went to the local comprehensive. And from the age of, well, five to probably 14 or 15, um, all of the local kids in the village, they, they would congregate on my dad's farm every evening. We'd play sort of what we used to call touch it on bikes, which is not nothing untoward, okay. I can assure you. <laughs> um, and we, would, we just had the most brilliant time. And at harvest time, uh, they would all come up to the uh, fields and then uh, they would get rides home on the uh, corn trailer, sitting on the top of the corn, driving along the road, like 20 kids in this tra corn trailer. Oh, I mean, my dad would go to prison for that now. Yeah. But we, every child every, who's obviously now an adult, they would all say that that was a really important part of their childhood. And then I look at the kids today in the same village and I think, you poor buggers. 
because we we were just we at nine o'clock i mean in the school holiday at nine o'clock my my mother would say okay see you at five and off we'd go and she she didn't worry about where we would be she didn't worry about paedophiles and there were paedophiles around just but and but nobody really it was just a very innocent time and I, i know we shouldn't ever want to hark back to the golden age that never was but I, I don't believe that kids nowadays can have that kind of upbringing anymore. It sounds like great fun. Um, it was. I mean, you, you joke about your, your fates in that school election, or more to the point, the elections in which you've stood in since. <laughs> I, it, must be, it must be so surreal for you now to be like, such a major figure in the, in the conservative world and, in, and in, just in politics in general. And to have not been able to get elected, like, what do you put that down to? Just, I, I suppose, standing in seats that were hard to win is the first problem. No, it wasn't that. It's being in the right place at the right time, and I wasn't. Um, Duncan Baker, who's now the Conservative MP for North Norfolk, he was in the right place at the right time. Norman Lamb had stood down, and it was the Brexit election, and he's got a majority of 14,000. Now, I stood in that seat in 2005, Uh, when the Tories were still very unpopular. Michael Howard was the leader. Uh, Norman Lamb had proved himself as a really good constituency MP. And I came, I got, I got selected. I was the first, um, I was the first person to be selected by a Conservative Selection Committee, having previous, having told them that I was gay. Now, if you're the first to do anything, there were gay conservative politicians but they'd never actually outed themselves before a selection committee before um if you're the first to do anything you become an object of curiosity for the media and i knew that i would get press coverage because of that um there was nothing i could have done about it and nothing that i would have tried to do about it but when you have gabby hinsliff in the observer writing about the the openly gay conservative candidate you think well how can a left or centre newspaper just write that? You'd never write the openly straight conservative candidate. And North Norfolk is a conservative area with a small C. So it didn't really do me any favours. Um, and so that was I've, part of it then? Is, 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 does that partly explain it? Do you think, do you I think, think it, being gay was a problem for I don't conservative think, voters at that time? No, I don't think it affected the result there because Chris Renard who I knew quite well at that point, he was the Lib Dem campaigns manager, and he said, do not go for North Norfolk because Norman Lamb will get a 10,000 majority. But of course, I thought I knew different. Yeah. And I, he was right. I mean, the majority went from 483 to 10,600. Well, what a great result that was for my CV. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can look myself in the mirror and know that that wasn't my fault, partly because at the next election, the Tory candidate who was straight, married, two kids, Volvo on the drive, he got an even worse, Norman Lamb got an even bigger majority against him. So that was almost a strange comfort to me, bizarrely. But of course, for the 2010 election, um, I, I, I got on the A-list at the second time of asking, because I, I was very associated with David Davis. So for the Cameron people, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. Although I was going well with Cameron. Um, and I applied for a couple of seats fairly early on. Um, I applied for Anne Widdicombe's seat, which is near where I live, and I thought I'd have a really good chance of that. And I did, I think, the best speech I've ever done in a selection committee and answered the questions in the best way that I've ever done and didn't make it past the first round. And I, I could only conclude that because I was quite a good friend of Anne Widdicombe, they thought, well, we don't want to repeat. 
Okay. I mean, I, I don't know whether that was the reason. Um, so, but you present I, differently, don't you? It's not like you're kind of, it's not well, like you're known as well, like well, indeed. sort of mini Whittacombe kind of character. You know, you and, you. And I didn't even I didn't even call him my fag hag either. So, <laughs> would that have helped? Uh, possibly not. Um, so then I started uh, Total Politics magazine and Bite Back Publishing. So I took two years out of selections because I just thought it's not compatible to start a new business and trawl through uh, seats. Um, and by the time I got back into it, it was really a bit late. I nearly got Bracknell, but I was in the final three with Philip Lee and Rory Stewart. And shall we say Bracknell came to regret their choice of uh, MP at that point. And then East Surrey was the last one that I did, and that was Sam Guimar. And I actually, I blame Therese Coffey for the fact that I'm not in Parliament, really, because she said to me a week before that selection, now you have written a good speech, haven't you? Because they're expecting a future cabinet minister there. I thought, well, I don't really write speeches. I just go in and do it. Oh, come on. Um, so I then wrote a speech and thought that I'd memorised it. Oh. And it was just one of those awful occasions when not only hadn't I really memorised it, and I, I mean, I know now that I cannot, I can't learn lines. I, I did a audition to present a documentary once and I had to learn this half page of A4 and I, I couldn't do it. Um so the speech went wrong after the third sentence and I never really recovered. And like, how bad was the speech? Is it only just you would notice or were people in the room? No, they would have noticed. And then one of the, there was a local candidate, a local councillor who thought that she ought to get it by right. Of course. And she had primed an old bloke in the front row to ask about the North Norfolk result. Well, what a rotter. I know. Well, that's politics, isn't it? Um, And I, I, I just knew, and I came six out of six. Um, and Sam Guimar got it. Again, a very wise choice for the constituency, as it proved. Um, and after that, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to be 52 at the following election. I'm not going to flog a dead horse. And I, I remember texting. I was at a Downing Street reception shortly after the 2010 election, and Cameron came up to me and said, you are going to try again, aren't you? And I just, on the spur of the moment, said, do you know what? I'm not. And I texted Saeed Avasi, who was the party chairman at the time, and I, I said, can you take me off the candidates list, please? And she immediately rang me back and said, are you sure? And I said I was sure. I wasn't 100% sure. Um, but then LBC came along, and that LBC has given me what politics used to give me, because it's still involved in politics in, in, a, in a way. And I've only had one momentary lapse after that. In 2017, when Alan Hazelhurst and Saffron Walden stood down, I just thought, Oh, it's my home seat. My my dad had just died, so I kind of had could had a house there. And for twenty four hours, and I even talked to James Rear, my boss at LBC, about. It, I said, "You you deserve to know what I'm thinking of doing," because yeah. I was about I was scheduled to present their election night program. And I I said, "I'm really going through quandaries. I've got to talk to people over the next twenty four hours and make a decision." I said, "There's no guarantee that I will be selected, but I kind of feel." If I don't do it, I'm going to live to regret it. And I don't want to have regrets. So in the end, I wrote, I did the classic thing and wrote on a piece of paper the pros and cons. And I came up with four pros and 15 cons. And that was my decision made. And I still think that, I mean, it was going to be against Stephen Parkinson, who had been Theresa May's political secretary. And he was clearly the CCHQ favoured candidate. Yeah. And... um, 
Catherine Bennett, who works for that, I think she still works for Airbus. She was in it. Then she dropped out, and Kemi Badden Badenoch was also the other one. And everybody thought, well, Saffron Warden's never going to pick a black woman, are they? Because there is still this perception that conservative safe seats don't do that. But in Essex, they do. Pretty Patel in Braintree, James, no, Whittam, uh, James Cleverly in Braintree, and now Kemi Badenoch in Saffron Walden, which is a, a massive thing, I think. Um, anyway, she, she won it. But I do, I do sometimes think, had I gone for it, would I have got it? But I don't, I don't regret it because it was the right decision not to do it. But do you still have a, a bit of the draw of it? I think, you know, people who want to be MPs, there is like a, it's like a, a vocational calling. Yeah, and be... It's a virus that never quite goes away. And, um... and you're still young in, politi- <laughs> in, in politics years, you're still young. No, I'm not. That's the thing in this country. If you're not in Parliament by the time you're 40 or maybe even 45, you might as well forget it. You're not going to get anywhere. And at that point in 2017... Um, I was 55. That's, I mean, there, there, there's always the exception. There's always the odd one. Brian Binley was older when he, he got in, and there, in there, there were a few, a few others. But in the end, I, when I first wanted to go into politics, I didn't really care about being a minister or anything. I, I loved, I genuinely loved all the constituency casework side. And I think I would have really enjoyed that. I think I would have found Westminster very frustrating. I think I might have become a sort of male Nadine Doris um, initially, although, I mean, she's one step away from the cabinet now. So, Um, but I think now I would have been very frustrated not to be a minister. Yeah. And um, I've always, you're going to think this shows remarkable lack of ambition, but I've always wanted to be secretary of state for transport. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I still think it's pretty ambitious. It's a cabinet level role. Well, it's one of those roles where you can actually do stuff. You can make a difference for good or ill. Um, And I know a bit about it. And I, I I would love to have done that. And there was a, I remember when David Davis, everyone thought he was going to win the leadership back in 2005. Um, and I do, I remember having a discussion with a friend at that point, and I said, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to work for him as Prime Minister in Downing Street. I don't know what I would have done. Uh, and then get made a Lord and become a junior transport minister. <laughs> that's what I would really love to do. Oh, and if Boris Johnson ever made me, well, that's never going to happen. But if Boris Johnson ever put me in the House of Lords, I would, I would literally die to be a transport minister. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And would you, I mean, would you find the Lords as satisfying as the Commons, though? No. 
No, of course not. But then I but guess it's, it's a job I mean, you, can't, life, you can't always have everything, but I won't even get that. So I, I don't obsess about it. Though I have chosen my title, but... Uh, What's the title? Lord Dale of Ashton in the County of Essex. <laughs> you, well, I thought I mean, you're maybe, bound maybe, to get a peerage at some point. Uh, you must be joking. Come on. Maybe, maybe Lord Ashton. It sounds a bit sort of um, heartbeat, doesn't it? Lord yeah, Ashton. nice. So you've given it a lot of thought. <laughs> I've given it a lot of thought, yeah. Well, influential all. people listen to this. Then maybe you know what, you know what thought did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I—I I mean, being a lord is like a great gig, isn't it? You don't have to stand for election. No one can get rid of you. And it's all a bit more genteel, isn't it? And uh, maybe I'll try and shake the House of Lords up a bit. But uh, yeah, that's—it's—it's it's not. Oh, look, I'm 58 now, and um, uh, it does go through my mind that I mean, LBC won't continue forever uh, i've had 11 years and radio presenters generally don't get that long although on lbc you've got nick ferrari i think he's been there 15 james o'brien 13 we're, we're basically the three bed blockers um and at some stage um that will come to an end and i i have started to think well what would i do if i wasn't at lbc and i, I generally don't think i would go on a different radio station i, I don't think it would have the appeal that lbc has had for me oh come um, on mellow magic oh i've, I've always <laughs> wanted to do a music show i've i've often there said to me, give me a show on smooth or something yeah and um so I, but i could only i couldn't do the playlist thing i'd have to choose my own music but my musical taste is so awful that i would lose um probably all the listeners the station had so it'd be, it would be permanent rock set sparks uh, meatloaf that's pretty much what they play anyway isn't it maybe <laughs> there'll, be a, there'll be a radio station out there for you somewhere, I'm sure. But it's, I suppose it's healthy to think about what you would do next. Um, and if it's not stand for Parliament, I mean, publishing, obviously, you, you with Bite Back and, and the books that you've authored and sort of co-authored, and there's so many of them. I mean, is that... What, what, how satisfying is publishing as an industry to work in? Well, I, I left it two years ago, and I thought I would miss it because I've been involved in books and publishing for uh 21 years it's a big chunk of my working life but i i'm really surprised to say that i don't miss it at all and part of the reason is that i'd always run relatively small companies i think the most people i ever employed at any one time was 25 but when you when you run a company like that and and if you haven't ever done it you um you can't quite understand the pressure that you have as the either the owner or MD because you know that one wrong decision and 25 people are out of work. And that actually, I know people think that anybody who runs a business is just motivated by money. Well, in publishing, that is not the case. Your, your motivation is survival. Um, and, and you hope that of the 80 books that you publish in a year, there will be three or four that effectively subsidize the rest um and that's what normally happened and it was, it was funny actually there was always a point in each year i was thinking oh god where's the best seller coming from this year and then suddenly you'd get i'd get a call from damien mcbride or somebody saying oh i've got this idea for a book excellent we'll sign you up then um yeah, and i did get a, yeah, I, well, I, yeah well it was, i still think that's the best book i ever published um i I, I, I always got a kick out of taking on a book that I thought other people wouldn't take on and then it worked. I mean, there are plenty that didn't. Um, but it was a sort of, it was almost a social enterprise because we did publish books that nobody else in publishing would ever touch. Uh, and I was actually quite proud of that. And we made it work 
through different we, we had to be much more innovative than other publishers but I'd been doing it for, for 10 years and I'd started to do a lot more television. I got a gig on CNN, uh, uh, which turned out to be a three day a week show. And I just thought so, something's got to give here. And if, and normally my attention span is about five years and I've been doing bite back for 10 at that point. And um, I, I had sort of slight differences of uh, opinion about where the company should go as well. And in the end, I thought this is the time to think about going and it was a wrench um but as it turns out it was that as matt hancock would say that the right decision at the right time <laughs> but I, you know i feel like i i owe you so much thanks for for what you did at bite back because of all you know by a lot of political books i think probably in the last 10 years i bought bite back more than any other publisher and it was it was all the well, sorts well, of let's face I it, wanted if, to read. It was great. If, if you hadn't done that, <laughs> we, we really would have been in trouble because you were kind of our target, well, still are, our target market. Because... Well, I loved it. I was just like, this is the stuff people should be publishing. I loved it. And yeah. There's so many great books I bought from Biteback that no one else, as you say, was, would have published. And I thought... And, and, and who's your new book published with? Quirkus. <laughs> <laughs> but Biteback never asked. I don't know how it works. Should I have got in touch with you at any point? Is that well, how not, it works or... Well, I mean, I always hated dealing with literary agents because I, in Tony Blair's words, I regard them as the roadblock to reform. They put barriers <laughs> in front of publishing rather than facilitate it. So do you have an agent? I do have an agent, yes. Well, uh, your agent should have offered it to all sorts of different publishers, which I would have thought by back ought to have been one of them. We did talk to, uh, well, I don't want to go into sort of commercial details <laughs> on the book. But, um, go on. Um, but but I, I guess what I meant was not specifically about this book, but it, it's, you know, does publishing work in a way where, and there might be people listening to this who think, I've got an idea for a book. Yeah. How do you well, do it that way around? With me, I always welcome people coming to me directly, and a lot of people did. The, the problem is, of course, that sometimes people think they've got the most brilliant idea, and I think it's a bit of a shit idea. And, yeah. and particularly when it's somebody quite famous and important – I mean, you can't, you can't just publish a book because somebody's got a bit of a name. It has to be a good idea. And there were one or two books that, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have published and should have been... I mean, Michael Spicer wrote some diaries, which, the, from the manuscript, were actually quite interesting, too, far too long. Um, but he had some quite good anecdotes, but, and I did take it on. But as the publishing process went on, he basically excised anything that was interesting. And there, there was a Liberal Democrat MP... Uh, that defect that wanted to defect to the Conservatives when he was um, chairman of the 1922 committee, and um, it, it didn't actually happen in the end. But he not only wouldn't identify the MP, and he did tell me who it was in the end. He wouldn't identify the MP. Didn't he? Wouldn't even say it was a Liberal Democrat. Oh, you think, well, you've taken that that from a newspaper serialization point of view. That was a bloody good anecdote. Yeah, and he just ruined. It. And there were so many others that uh, that were like that. And of course, what politicians, particularly when they've retired, they don't want a friendless old age, the kind of old age that Sasha Swire is going to have. <laughs> I haven't read that book yet, but is it is it any? Well, good? I have I haven't either, but I've I've seen some of the anecdotes, and you think I mean I. I Two days ago, um, we're recording this in the middle of September. Two days ago, I did an hour-long interview with David Cameron. And, uh, I mean, I talked to him about it. And, I mean, he was literally gobsmacked by it. And you think, well, this person has stayed in his home and was considered a friend. 
and then relates an anecdote about him wanting to give her one in the bushes. Well, was that necessary? Okay, it probably added another 10 grand to the newspaper serialization, but it's a bit of a bad thing to do, isn't it? So for people who might not know what we're talking about, this is uh, Sasha Swire, the wife of Hugo Swire, yeah. Conservative MP, and it's kind of a diary of an MP's wife, or how to be an MP's wife or something. I forget the title now, something like that. But the is it a proper, secrets, so there's proper, think, like, proper, there's proper... Well, I, I remember that one of the first books I ever published um, was, I can't remember the title of it now, um, it was by the wife of Lord Ivor Richard, and it was all about um, the first year of the Blair government, and she had some pretty fruity things to say, and of course, <laughs> I mean, he was bereft by it, because it did get um, a lot of coverage, and um, some people don't have the... It's like Mo Molan, when she had her brain tumour, there was something that, the, 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 the thing that stops you and I saying really embarrassing things on this podcast, I mean, okay, we said the odd embarrassing thing, but really embarrassing thing, she lost that ability because of the brain tumour. And I think there is, there is a certain sort of, there's a little devil on people's shoulders that say, go on, go on, you, you know you want to really, go on. Yeah. And whereas you and I might think, no, I don't think I will. Sasha Swire, I'm afraid, has gone and done it do you, want, do you want a couple of momolum anecdotes uh, yeah i mean for, firstly i have to say this sasha swire book now sounds absolutely brilliant <laughs> I, I mean you're, i'm sort of you're, waving so shallow. Whether, you're even uh, even more yeah. shallow than i thought you were oh god completely shallow yeah <laughs> any sort of titillation or gossip's great um, let, me, let me let me tell you about momolum um she when she was still in the cabinet she was doing a tour of the all the commercial stands at the labor party conference one year i think this was in bournemouth and um she came and had her photo taken at the politico stand and so she said to me and my partner john come here boys so she she we, we stand in a row and she then puts her arm around both of us and then, as I found out later, as she was kneading my left buttock, she was kneading John's right buttock <laughs> as well. Now, in today's world, that's sexual assault. And I interviewed her once on a late lamented radio station called One Word, where I did a monthly books programme, and her memoirs had just come out. And she walked through the door, lifted her leg and farted. Okay. She sat down in front of the microphone and I said, could you just sort of say what you had for breakfast? Um, and she burped. <laughs> now, the, plenty of other people have got these. And, and I mean, some people reckon that it wasn't actually the brain tumour, that, that, that she was doing that much, a long time before that was yeah. ever diagnosed. But she was an absolute character. And I, re I really enjoyed sort of talking to her. Um, but yeah, there aren't many of her ilk. No, she's superb. Um, just on publishing then, because you know, I've bought a lot of bite back books. I sort of keep saying it, but what when you talk about you know the ones that are bestsellers and the ones that maybe mm. don't sell as much. So you know, for bite back, what would good sales be for a book? Well, Damien McBride's, if I remember rightly, so if you include hardback, paperback, and ebook sold somewhere between 30 and 40,000, which That's great. any political book is really good. Um, I published Bill Rogers' memoirs at Politico's, um, which I still say is one of the best books I've published. Um, that sold about 1,700. 
Now, we could make that work, or at least it would wipe its face financially. Yeah. Big publishers nowadays don't want to know unless the book's going to sell 10,000 in hardback. But that, that meant that we could take on a lot of books that really, given our size, we ought not to have been able to do. And because we could publish quickly, unlike the bigger publishers who would always wait a year, 18 months, and politics can't wait that long sometimes. Um, so we we punched above our weight, but I mean most of the most of the books that we published would have sold, well, some sold far fewer than a thousand, but um, most of them would be at least a thousand. If you're going to make any money on a book, it needed to be probably above three. Um, we did develop a more general list, and some of those sold very well. If you if you can get ten thousand sales, you are doing very well. But I always took the view that I I wasn't in it for the money. Um, I wanted to use some of the best-selling books to enable us to publish other books that I felt ought to be published. Um, I like to think we performed a social service, Matt. Well, you did for me anyway, and I'm sure many <laughs> listeners of the show. Um, publishing Damien McBride's book um, ended with you getting a police caution. And I remember I was watching it live down at Brighton Beach, yeah. and Damien McBride's doing a live TV interview. And in the back is that guy. Now, anyone who's been to political party conference in the last 10 years would have seen this bloke, the no nukes guy, and he's got this dog with a sign on it that says no nukes with a rogue apostrophe. Yep. I mean, it's disgusting that you're the one who ended up with a caution over all this, but <laughs> it's, it's just an amazing piece of telly where well, the most, the most he's amazing carpet in the background and then you is, get involved and then his dog, the dog bites him. Yep. Yeah, that provided the comedy element. Um, oh. But the, the most amazing thing <laughs> is that the, the man's name is Stuart, and the dog's name is Stuart. Oh, God. Now, I mean, I, I can't really comprehend that, can you? Um, I mean, I, I have written the full, unexpurgated version of this in the book. But it's, it's one of those things that social media now, whenever I hit the headlines for good or ill, if the left want to get at me, that's what they do. They retweet the YouTube video, which they have edited to make look far worse than it actually was because no punches were exchanged. Well, he tried to hit me, but I, it, it didn't connect and I recoiled and that meant that we both fell over. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was no, um, I mean, the, 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 if you judge by what's said on social media, I beat up an OAP. No. Now there was no beating up. I don't even know that he was an OAP. It's just a sort All of grapple, did, isn't it? I pulled him away from the camera by yeah. his rucksack straps. I never actually <laughs> touched him. And I don't think I would have got the caution had Caroline Lucas not been arrested on the same day for fracas in some fracking uh, demonstration near Brighton. And I remember when I got to the police station that evening, because they came for me while I was on air, by the way, um, <gasps> Which was, I mean, I can give you the whole story if you want, but... Yeah, of well, course. I, you might live to regret this because it might take a little bit of time. Oh, but, that's okay. Um, what happened was that when I got back in the car and Damien got in the car afterwards, he didn't know what had been going on. So I explained to him and I, and I remember saying to him, I don't think it'll become a big thing. <laughs> so I took him off to Hove to do an interview with Nick Ferrari on LBC through the Heart Studios. Then went back to the hotel and I was having breakfast with my producer, Matt Harris, who's now on Newsnight, and Tom Cheel, who was then LBC's political editor, now runs the station. And we were kind of laughing about it because it was there was a comedy element to yeah it. it was really funny and 
then Tom looked at his phone and this was in the early days of video on social media, particularly yeah. Twitter. And he said, Oh, someone's posted a video of it. Cause of course there were loads of cameras there. And again, I didn't really think anything of it. I mean, given I'm supposed to be a bit of a communications professional, I didn't really clock. And then I compounded it by going back to my room and writing a blog about it, which was full of bravado. So sort of say, well, of course, I was protecting my author and I'd do that. I'd do it again. Yeah. Idiot. Absolute idiot. Is that uh, what was that? Was that basically the nail in the coffin? That was basically you wrote your own confession. Yeah, it was really because it was... I mean, I, I don't tend to delete things that I live to regret, but I had to with that in the end. And then Matt, uh, bless him, he said, I think we ought to go and see Stuart. So he said, I'll, I'll go and have a word with him. And then once I've done so, you can come and talk to him. So he went and talked to Stuart and Stuart was fine. And um, so I thought, well, I'll go and apologise, even though I really didn't think that... Mm. But, Sometimes you have to do things that you have to do. Um, and so we, I had my picture taken with him, and I thought that was the end of it. But what I didn't know at that point was that a very senior broadcast journalist, who I'm not going to name, but I'm pretty sure I know who it was, um, was urging him to sort of take it further. No way. Yeah. And would, would this be a broadcast journalist that we would know? Yes. And... Um, I think that Sussex police had had complaints from several people who had seen the video as well. And so my, I was presenting drive at that point. So I remember doing the first couple of hours and it got to half past six and Matt, we, we had, I could see on the clock one minute to go before I had to go back on air. We were in an ad break and Matt came in and he said, right, you should know that the uh, police are outside um, and I found out later that Sue English, the head of politics at the BBC, had actually lied to them and told them that I wasn't there earlier in the day, but they'd come back. Um, and um, he said, the police are here and they want you to go down to the station. And I said, well, can you come down at seven o'clock when the programme finishes? And they, luckily they agreed to that. So he was saying, um, yeah, what they want to talk about is, and I said, and welcome back to LBC, the time is 6.35. <laughs> And Alastair Campbell then was the next guest. So he comes in and in the next break, he says, what on earth is going on? So I told him the whole story and he said, uh, well, any help I can give you, just let me know. And Alastair, as you well know, is somebody, if you're in a fight, you want him in the trenches with you. And um, so Joe Pike, who's now political correspondent at Sky News, he was our reporter at the conference at that point. Wrote Project Fear, published by Biteback. Brilliant. One of the very good books, books I published. Really mm. good. Um, if you want to know all about Scottish independence referendum, read that. Um, he then came in at quarter to seven and he said, right, this is what's going to happen. At seven o'clock, you are going to follow me uh, through the, all of the journalists. And you're not going to turn your head to the right or left. You're going to look at the back of my head. You're not going to utter a word. And we will walk down to the waiting unmarked police car. <laughs> oh, mate. So at the end of the program, I do as I'm told once and or i remember seeing dave wooding nick watt with their notepads ready but both looking at the ground because they couldn't quite believe that they were covering this and they looked really embarrassed and then all i heard was you going down the nick ian and that was gobby Paul oh Lambert. yes yes 
And um, so I went down to the car, got in the car, and Gobby was following with a camera crew. And so I went off, and Matt told me later that he'd said to him, was that a police car then? And Matt said, no, he's got loads of cars. It'll be one of them. It was an Addison Lee. Yeah. I mean, it's a real shame that the police didn't have the sense of humour to, to call you up on your show. And, uh, <laughs> is that Mr. Dale? Can you imagine? Your niche, son. Oh, um, so I get down to Brighton. So scary. So I get down to Brighton Nick and there was, there was a sense of sort of um, being slightly out of this world. I couldn't quite believe this was happening. But you're panicking at that point. You're catastrophizing thinking, God, I could go to prison. No, no. no because I just thought, well, this is ridiculous. Somebody's yeah. going to see sense here. So I go down to the station and questioned by a female uh, I don't know if she's a detective or what. Anyway, she clearly didn't want to take it further. I explained what had happened. She said she'd seen the video. She couldn't really see that there was anything wrong. And then she got a call. And to this day, I don't know what that call was about. But So she went out of the room. And then 20 minutes later, another female police officer comes in, a much more senior one. And I thought, hang on a minute, I'm in trouble here. And I'm sure it was the Caroline Lucas thing that they thought, well, if we've nicked her, we've got to nick him. Yeah. And I can understand that. I mean, sort of the police have, I mean, okay, they clearly didn't want to take it any further, but I, I completely understood why they did. So I then had to go back two days later. So John, John drove me back because I live in Tunbridge Wells, so it's not that far away. So he drove me back down. And then on the way, I don't know why I hadn't thought about this before. I thought, well, what if there's media waiting? Because it had been all, it had been it was the one of the main stories on the news at ten. Yeah. I mean, I completely obliterated Ed Miliband's leader speech. <laughs> and I was thinking, and my sister, my sister rang up, absolutely incandescent. What would Mum have thought if she'd been still been alive and all that sort of thing? Oh, thanks for your support. <laughs> oh man, but surely she. I mean. Any well, no. I mean, I'm glad. Person, I'm glad she didn't witness it, to be honest, because she will, she would have been absolutely mortified. Whatever the rights and wrongs of it were, yeah. it would have been an embarrassment. Um, so on the way down to Brighton, I thought, well, I need to prepare a statement. Um, so I started tapping it out on my phone, and I it was I read it back, and I thought, no, this is there's something not right. It's too long. It's too defensive. And I was going and going. I shall, I shall, of course, register for an anger management course. Oh. <laughs> so I thought, I know. I'll ring Alastair Campbell. He'll know what to do. Exactly. So I rang Alastair Campbell and my sis, other sister, and between them, they changed it and shortened it. My sister was absolutely delighted that Alastair Campbell accepted her amendments. It was one of the right. proudest achievements of her life, I think. And Alistair was fantastic. He really was. Anyway, we have, there were TV cameras waiting, but um, we, we drove in a different entrance, so I avoided them on the way in and the way out. Um, and I had to accept... Well, I didn't have to accept a caution. I could have gone to court. And had I not been at LBC, I probably would have done that. But I thought, I can't have this hanging over me for 12 months or however long it would have taken. Um, and looking back, I am absolutely convinced that if that had happened in 2020, as opposed to 2013, I would have lost my job at LBC. <gasps> really? Absolutely convinced. No. Because, I mean, they were really good. Um, but I just think the world has changed. And I You'd don't been think... I don't, I would have been cancelled. I don't think I could have survived that now. Isn't that depressing? Say. What an awful perspective. It's, inc it's incredibly depressing. Um, but you... <laughs> 
we live in we live in a slightly different world and that it's much easier for big companies to make things go go away by I mean, it would have been a sort of fairly short-lived thing, sort of being Dale Sack from LBC, and there were people who were calling for it. But now, but now on Twitter, I mean, bear in mind, at that point, I probably had, I don't know, 50,000 Twitter followers. I've now got 215,000, and anything I say is used and taken down in evidence, and I just know the outcry would be just unsustainable. Oh, that's such a depressing thought. By the way, with the caution, does that stay on your record forever? I don't know, actually. Um, I mean, my main worry was that I wouldn't be able to go to the United States again, but apparently not. Um, Have you been since? Yes. Yeah, because oh, I covered the 2016, well, I covered Trump's inauguration. So I got a, a working uh, visa thing for that. Um, but it, it did cross my mind that that could be a problem even then. Um, but I don't know how long it stays on. Well, as long, as, as, long as you don't reoffend, and I'm not—I'm a quite a peaceful kind of guy, really. I don't go around beating people up, and um, as I say, I didn't then. I mean, it's, it was such a funny thing. It's insane that you got police police caution for it. Um, by the way, I don't—I don't expect you to tell me on the podcast, but afterwards, <laughs> on, off the record, will you tell me who you think that broadcast journalist was? Um, am I? Yeah, <laughs> people listening will think, "Oh, I hope he told him off cam- uh, off uh, mic." <laughs> and I obviously would never tell anyone. It no, because you're all, all permanently sealed. I'm very discreet. Having worked <laughs> in politics, you learn how to keep a secret, don't you? you, you I'd never pass anything. Yeah, on most you. most of the time. I mean, this this is a thing because politics, I think, is one of the most gossip gossipiest. Is that a word? Um, it is now. Yeah, in, indeed. Uh, it's one of the, the most gossipy professions there is because everybody wants to know who's up, who's down, who's shagging who and all the rest <laughs> of it. Um, so I actually, I don't think I've ever told anyone who my suspicion is. Oh, so I'm going to be the first. Oh. <laughs> as long as I don't <laughs> mess up so the persuasive. <laughs> final part of this interview. Um, your book is superb, by the way. We should plug the book, Why Can't We All Just Get Along, which is very, very much up my street, and I imagine it's up the street of people who listen to this podcast and who listen to yours. Uh, it's just... well, I think so, because, I mean, if you've read it, you'll know there is a lot about the art of political interviewing in that. And, I mean, you are somebody who I think you get so many stories out of politicians in this podcast because of the way that you interview them. And you've got the, you've got the time and the space to do it, which generally the likes of Nick Robinson... Adam Bolton, whoever, they haven't got the time to do it because of the, the obvious constraints. So um, I think there is a lesson about the return of the long-form political interview here, and you're a, a, the personification of that. Oh, crikey. Well, that's very kind. You're going to make <laughs> me blush here. Um, but it is a brilliant read, and it's nice to read because sometimes I think, you know, I think most people do find the era in which we're living distressing, and I guess it brings us back to the point you were making at the start about the history of the House of Commons and how coarse things used to be. But I think, I mean, it's almost the same point as you were saying, actually, that you'd have been cancelled now for that for the dogman thing. But it does feel as if, though, certainly in my life and probably in yours, the last few years have been particularly coarse. It does feel yeah. that, okay, you know, in a historical context, things were worse in medieval times. But in, in sort of, um, certainly post-Blair, this has been the most ferocious time. It has. Um, I, it's difficult to know what to attribute it to because some people say, well, it was actually the financial crisis that started it all. I, I'm not sure that that's right. Um, certainly in this country, the Scottish independence referendum, I think we saw a side of 
um, politics that we hadn't seen probably since the 1980s. So if you think back to um, that period, which I can and I guess you can't. Um, I vaguely remember it. <laughs> I was born in 82, so... I mean, it, it was a very divisive time because the government was doing things that inevitably led to quite a lot of social division. Um, things quietened down a bit in the 1990s and indeed under Blair, though, of course, the Iraq war blew it all up again in, in some ways. But I do think it is the Scottish independence referendum that kind of heralded this new way of... That the, the people talk to each other, particularly on social media, and of course the Brexit referendum had it in spades. And I, I was actually quite genuinely shocked at, at the, the, the not just during the campaign. In fact, the campaign itself was actually quite quiet compared to the aftermath, um, and the. The, the, the divisions, the, the statistics that the polling companies came out with were 37% of Remainers would not want their son or daughter to go out with a Brexiteer, 11% on the other side, draw your own conclusions, I suppose I could say if I was being um, gratuitous. Um, but I, I've never understood that mentality that you can't actually get on or even marry somebody with different politics to you. Yeah, I know, I always I know hate loads of people who, who are married to, like, I, I know one guy who described himself as a communist is married to an avowed Thatcherite and they have a great relationship. I imagine it's very fiery. Well, I don't know. Maybe they just have an agreement they're not going to talk about these things. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really sad when family... My, my sisters both voted Remain. I remember them having a right old go. We say, you've ruined our daughter's future. Yeah. Oh, for God's sake. I, mean, I agree with my, your sisters, you know, but that's... They uh... persuaded my dad to vote Remain, who <laughs> had always hated the EEC because when we joined it, he had to sell his cows. Um, <laughs> simple as that and and um they should have been uh, running the campaign if they can get him to vote remain <laughs> oh boy i know um so uh, i i had thought that we were kind of getting back on an even keel and then of course covid came along and now we've got all the free trade stuff and you you find the same old arguments i did a phone in on brexit a couple of months ago and i said at the beginning can we not rehearse the old arguments we have actually left whatever you think of it we have left yeah. and let's look at the future i might as well have saved my breath and i said at the end of the hour i really wish i hadn't done this because it's been an absolute disgrace of a phone in you should all be ashamed of yourself <laughs> <laughs> which, wow. which having been in the job for 10 years i can get away with which what a great thing to say to you, I, I would i would have had a call from the boss over that i think uh, insulting the listeners but it was horrible I did one the other day, actually, which was really good. Um, so maybe maybe times are changing. But um, I, look, I'm I'm totally fed up with this argument. I want the country to move on, um, and and we've got to all just get along. <laughs> yes. Oh, lovely, <laughs> lovely bit of branding. I would love to just leave it there, but I did want to ask you about some other things. Um, do you feel? And I I think this about you sometimes. You're obviously a public figure. You're on a talk radio station, which is you know, a highly personal relationship with your audience, mm. where it really is about you and your personality and, and how you interact with other human beings. But I always get the sense that, as well as being so visible you know, on social media, on your brilliant podcast for the many that you do with Jackie Smith, and on LBC basically every day, that despite that, despite so much of yourself being out there, actually you've always struck me as quite a private person. Am I right or am I wrong? My partner, John, who I've been with for 25 years, um, which 
in in gay terms is a hundred years really um, <laughs> in gay years like yes. dog years yeah quite just a just to divert for a moment, Anne Widdicombe anecdote coming up. Um, I remember in 2003 when gay adoption was going through Parliament and the, Ian Duncan Smith had whipped Tory MPs to vote against it. And I was doing one of my theatre shows with her, A Night with Anne Widdicombe, Off, Off. And um, we were coming back from somewhere, I don't know, some theatre somewhere in the West Country, and we were discussing this. And um, I said to her, I don't understand why you're against this. Surely it's better for kids to be have parents in a loving environment, regardless of what their sex is. Yes, you can say, well, ideally it should be a man and a woman, but if, if, those, if those parents aren't available, um, surely you could bring yourself to admit that it's better that than sending the entire childhood in a foster home. She said, well, stuff and nonsense. She said, um, the, it's been proved beyond fact that the average gay relationship lasts for two years. And I sort of looked at her and I said, my, my experience, it's more like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and she did laugh, I, I, to, to give her credit. But um, how did we get onto that? What were we talking about? We, I was talking about whether you were a private person or not. And, 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 and well, you my, almost proved yeah. the point by deflecting with an Anne Widdicombe. Well, my, no, my partner um, would laugh at that because um, in, in the book, there's a passage about how I was nearly raped once. And I didn't really think anything about writing this. It was something that didn't traumatise me at the time. It doesn't now. Um, anyway, this got picked up by The Observer and they did a big article on it, even though they told me it was about the TV series I Will Destroy You, where there's a male rape scene. They just wanted my comment on it. Or well, the article turned out to be all about me, not that. And that kind of took me aback a little bit. And then the Daily Mail rang up and said, would I write an 1800-word feature for them on male rape? So I told John that I was going to do this and he just rolled his eyes and said, can't you keep anything private? <laughs> um, I, look, I'm, I, I don't think I'm a private person because on the radio, I will try and bring a personal angle into particularly emotional phone-ins um, because you, you attract better callers that way. And, and they... A lot of people, particularly in coronavirus, they regard you as the friend that they don't know. Yeah. They, they hear you every night. So you're part of their lives. I'm, I'm sitting here at the moment in Appledore in North Devon. At a, I've been speaking at a drive-in literary festival. Uh, it's a fantastic experience, I have to say. There are about 130 people there sat in their cars watching me on the stage on a big screen. And um, I related some of the anecdotes I tell in the book about the, the really emotional calls I've had on suicide, on, on rape and depression, anxiety. And um, you, you can't remain private because you, you have to give, this sounds very trite, but you have to kind of give of yourself to get something back. Yeah. And I have so many people who ring me up and tell me things that they've never told their partners, their husbands, their wives, their friends. Um, and when you think on the male rape thing, um, it, it, it is a survivors UK say that on average it takes a man 26 years to tell somebody else about being sexually assaulted 26 years now imagine the mental anguish that you go through in those 26 years so the fact that I then did a two-hour phone-in on this subject and actually talked about my own experience it kind it always the, the objective of doing that is not to sort of say, oh, wasn't I brave? It didn't affect me in a bad way. The, the objective is to say to people, well, I went through what you've gone through. You probably think you're the only one that's experienced this, whether it's suicidal thoughts, whether it's depression or whatever. And 
when I look back on my broadcasting career, I am most proud of the phone-ins I do on those subjects. It's not the political interviews that give me the kick now. It's actually really connecting with individuals. And that was so important during the, certainly the initial couple of months of coronavirus. I had a guy phone me up saying, Ian, I phoned up to tell you that my mum died two hours ago from COVID oh. and I gave it to her. Oh my word. Oh my word. Now, oh, that, God. That, that was a moment. Um, and then he phoned back a week later. <sighs> and of course he was, he was in, in, traumatized by the fact that he felt that it was his fault because he hadn't he said the reason i'm phoning you is because all those people out there who are not social distancing who are not washing their hands do you want to go what through what i've gone through this evening and i suspect there were many many people in that audience that night who thought you know what he's right yeah and you, you do, to deal with. and this is, this is why this whole image of speech radio, of white van man and black cab man and all the rest of it, it is so wrong. I, mean, I don't think it was ever right, but it is certainly not right now. And if you're a responsible radio host, you, you don't do constant phone-ins on immigration, Muslims, <laughs> benefits, abortion, Israel. You try and challenge yourself and do a subject where you think you might only get five calls that hour, but they'll be bloody good ones. Yeah. You don't have to have a full switchboard to do a good phone in. I can get that switchboard running in two minutes flat if I want yeah. to. <laughs> but what, what's, what's the point in just constantly doing the same old subjects time after time? You, you, I get a real kick out of even after 11 years finding something new to talk about. And, and sometimes the producers who are in, invariably, I mean, in their early to mid 20s, I say, are you sure? I said, no, I'm not, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> yeah. and, and you do have to live on the edge sometimes. But I've worked out now that even if nobody calls in, I can actually put a coherent hour together and make it interesting. Because um, I remember the first show I did, the whole phone system collapsed and I had to speak for 10 minutes without any calls or anything or a guest or anything. And it was complete gobbledygook. Yeah. And because you panic and your brain starts not communicating with your mouth. So what I've worked out now is if that happens, you just talk a little bit more slowly so your brain can send messages to your <laughs> mouth properly. And um, I always say that to any new presenters who come in, that if you, if you start panicking, you're, you're, you're dead. You've, you've yes. got to take control of it. Um, and it, everyone thinks that it's a really easy job to do. I mean, what can be difficult about speaking into a microphone for three hours a night? It's what, what you love doing, isn't it, Ian? Um, well, think about it. You're not just talking to the microphone. You're thinking about the minister that you're about to interview next. Um, you've got the producer talking in your ear. You're thinking, right, what are we doing in the next hour? How am I going to introduce that at the top of the hour to make people keep listening? And you've got five things going on in your head for three hours constantly. And at the end of the three hours, you're knackered. Yes, yeah, so exhausting. Mentally. Um, but it's still the best job I've ever had and that I ever will have. Well, it's a great job and you're very good at it. I, I just wonder, you know, you, the experience you say of um, this sort of assault you were uh, kind of, you know, a victim of, the attempted rape, um, that you say it didn't traumatise you then, it, it hasn't traumatised you since. I mean, can you be sure of that? You know, do you think there is any remnant of it that has affected your behavior or the way you see the world or have you completely but you know you're one of those lucky people that can actually just quite easily brush that stuff off well I, th I think i am one of those people and I, I do think it's a minority um i mean i wrote in the book that i sort of thought well i put myself in that position um 
I mean, I didn't go back to his flat to have a drink. But then I worked out that he was paralytically drunk and I did not want to continue. Yeah. And this is where, again, on social media, so many people said, well, it's your fault. I said, no, 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 you don't understand the word consent. Anybody can say no, not just before, but during. Yes. Um, so I wasn't, I, I do remember after it had happened, I drove, I mean, I literally ran out after I escaped and uh, I mean, let's not go into all the details, but basically I had to wait for this guy to fall asleep to get away from him. And he was literally on top of me for 20 minutes falling asleep. That is a long time. That is a long time. And he'd already thrown up over my car keys. Oh. Um, <laughs> so eventually I maneuvered myself away and I, I ran out of the building, got in my car, did a real sort of Starsky and Hutch escape. Um, it was like a two minute drive back to my flat. And I remember just throwing up in the loo. So, I mean, I say I wasn't traumatized, but I recognized at the time that it could have ended up in a very, very different way. Um, but I kind of just, I mean, I hadn't, how old was I then? 28, 29? And I hadn't, I didn't actually, I mean, we're going into maybe more details than people want here, but I didn't actually do anything with another guy until I was 28. I was new, but I just hadn't acted on it. And I was, if I'm honest, making up for lost time. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, well, it is partly my fault. I now realise that it wasn't my fault, but that was how I felt at the time. But I didn't feel guilty. I, I wasn't traumatised. I didn't really think about it for a long time. And I, I only wrote it in the book because I think something else that I'd written had sparked off a memory. And I thought, well, um, I, I, I should mention this. And I didn't really go into huge detail because I just don't, it wasn't the sort of book. If I was writing a book about the gay world, I, I would probably have been a bit more explicit about exactly what happened. But people don't particularly want to read the sordid details. Actually, no, they do, but I wasn't going to do that. It's Sasha um, Swire's book for all that type of thing. Yeah, ex exactly right. Um, so I think it, I mean, going back to the whole thing about being private, I'm... I think that I do have a tendency to overshare, shall we say? <laughs> but I guess that's <laughs> as that evidenced by this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but it comes with the medium, doesn't it? If talk radio, I guess. I, I guess what I mean, I st I just think there's something in your manner that feels quite disciplined. Well, it, I, I think what it is is that I'm actually quite a shy person, which I know people always laugh at because maybe I'm that's radio and TV yes. all the time and do theatre shows and whatever. Um, but going into a room of strangers and having to make small talk is my idea of hell. Um, the thought of giving a speech, I hate all the preamble. Once I'm up there doing it, I quite enjoy it. And I love feeding off an audience. And I, mean, you, I know you're exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I, mean, doing, I did these three digital Edinburgh Fringe interviews, which, I mean, it was just not the same doing it as doing it on on stage. And I did I did any questions a few weeks ago from my sofa in Norfolk, and I just, that really made me realise how important a live audience is to me that I can feed off because I love going on that program when it's at a sort of dingy school hall somewhere, <laughs> and, and I, I just have this. The, the, my biggest bit of advice to anybody that goes on any questions in the warm-up question make the audience laugh and then they'll be on your side for the rest Absolutely. of the program. they may they may not agree with your politics but they think oh he's a decent bloke um and, and you can just sort of 
I mean, everything is about timing, isn't it? In, in the comedy world, you're a comedian, I'm not, but I do know that if I get my timing right, I can generate quite a good laugh if I'm, if I'm in the mood. Um, and I really get a kick out of that. So although I'm, I'm shy as, a, as an individual and I don't like going up to people I don't know and talking to them, um, which sounds odd when I do that every day on the radio, um, I, I know I give the impression that I'm exactly the opposite. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> having you open up, you know what I mean, share and, and be so candid. Uh, Ian, it's been such a treat. And I've kept you for far longer than I said I would. So, um, Well, I enjoyed every minute, seriously. Well, I mean, I, I, I do genuinely love your way of doing these podcasts. I mean, I've been listening to you for years. And um, I just like the way that you do it and the fact that you get people from all sorts of different persuasions or to come on i think is testament to, to what you do so as, as gordon brown would like would say thank you for what you do <laughs> thanks for all you do yes. <laughs> oh ian what a treat thank you well there you go ian dale i could have just chatted for ages i just thought this is a guy i should be going drinking with every weekend um, just such great company and such a great talker, obviously, given his job. But still, you know, it, it, you st- there's some people it's really pleasurable to be in their company. And even though it was over Zoom, it was just... And I know I've said this before. I just find it so stimulating doing this podcast. And I think during COVID, I hope it's helped you in some way, even just to distract you or to entertain or whatever. But just personally doing them, I always feel just more alert afterwards. I'm like, I've woken up. I don't often feel this alert, you know, particularly at a time like this where you can't really go anywhere. Um, so that I was just, what a great chat and what a great outlook and attitude to life. And I'm sure many of you have bought a number of bike back books over the years. What a great publisher. Sort of kept me going over the last 10 years, bike back. So uh, I felt I had to thank him for that. Um, so as I said at the start, various links, uh, should you wish to buy Ian's book, which is superb. My book, which, you know, I can't say whether it's superb or not, can I? But I'd be an idiot to say it's not. Um, and you can come to the book launch where Alistair Campbell is going to uh, interview me about the book. So it'd be quite strange to be interviewed by him for once rather than the other way around. Um and my book, Politically Homeless, is... Uh, I realise I sort of plug it on here. I never really, really say what it's about. Um, but it's a part memoir um, about why I got into politics and some funny behind-the-scenes stories. Some um, There's a chapter on the podcast, by the way, so there's a, there's a bit about that and um, some sort of behind-the-scenes stuff that I wouldn't have talked about elsewhere. So there's a, and there's a few stories, actually. I'm, sort of, I'm worrying now if I've been too indiscreet. But it's been printed, so that's that. Um stories about a few political encounters that uh, I haven't really talked about elsewhere so uh, you know some behind the scenes stuff and I, you know if you listen to this podcast regularly you'll know you know the last few years for people like me and my politics hasn't been great um, so it's a kind of uh, lessons I've learned from that I guess and my own personal take on why um, things got so bad um, but with a bit of hope as well so there you go. Buy Ian's book. Buy my book. We will both be very grateful. Uh, you can email the show. Don't forget, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Let me know where you listen. Any suggestions, any feedback. Um, and oh, please, I know I ask all the time. Uh, it must be pathetic. And if you've left an iTunes review, thank you very much. But if you haven't, and I think most of you haven't, 
just leave us an iTunes review. What a great, what a good deed to start the weekend with. You know what? You could say, the weekend has just started and I've left an iTunes review and I'm feeling good about myself. You know, it's like donating to the charity or, or to the church fund or whatever your goodness is. Um, so that can be your good deed for the weekend. And in advance, thank you very much. And I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.